describes acts of extreme violence in graphic detail and may include discussions about demonology and the occult, topics that caused widespread panic during the 1980s. This content may not be suitable for children under the age of 50. Viewer and listener discretion is advised. I'm James. I'm Dan. And Dan, you can hear me now? I can hear you great. Okay, great. So Dan, where are we from this week? Well, still in the abyss, unfortunately. We're, we're in layer 13, which I've been informed is the blood tour. The blood tour. Dominated by a vast ocean of red waters, but with occasional pieces of land. Because we, we were debating whether we should have a random encounter that was purely aquatic, but... Uh, right. You've noted, you've cited some land. There is land ho. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so, so still, still in the abyss. Ah, we have, uh, and, and when we're in good company here on the sea, another blood red sea, uh, we got a, a number of the Grog Empire out here uh, uh, talking to us. So, yes, we're, uh, we're on lucky number 13. However, it's totally unlucky, which we were commenting when we read the description. Is there any place in the abyss that's lucky? Yeah, I mean, when they tell you it's like the opposite of a luck stone, if that's the worst that happens to me, <laughs> yeah, on this, but that I'll take deal. I accept. Exactly. <laughs> give, me, give me the give me the unluck stone, and I'm out. I'll leave. I'll take it. I'll, I'll wear it forever. I'll keep it in my pocket. No worries. That's well. That's right. Uh, that's, well, it is seasons in the abyss. That's uh, exactly right. What? A, that's a good album. That's. Uh, you know that that's why I, well, we're hoping the pseudo undead will open for Slayer, though they think they just finished their farewell tour. But like most groups, yeah. I I feel like they'll be coming back again. I I was at I saw them on their farewell tour. And let me tell you this: this is a word of advice. If they say ever get back together again, it, it, be careful about going to a Slayer concert in which there's not seating. <laughs> yes, <laughs> not, you're not old. You're not you're you're old. You should have yes. general admission is not something for you anymore. No, no, I, I would think twice about it. You know, I wonder if on the blood tour, do you think like in the gift shop on the way out, they have like a little box of these unluck stones, you know, like one for a, a copper piece. Yeah, like when you go through the ride and then you take that home with you, take this unluck stone, it's another yeah. cur- random cursed items, you know, that, that are, you go to the Disney World or any of these places and they have that really crappy versions of Disney characters, whatever. This would be, cheap knockoffs of cursed items that you could take back. So that's right. That would be awesome. We're not the real deal. No, they're, they're just annoying enough and <laughs> cost a lot of money. And you, <laughs> that's and they're overpriced. And they don't, even, they don't even get back home. So uh, oh, they're, they're, people are commenting, Dash, Dan in the mosh pit. I, 
I don't think you, they don't quite understand the pedigree of metal uh, and death metal that you, uh, and thrash. You know all the genres. Well, so, you know, we were, we were all products of the 80s, so it was hard to avoid that stuff. Uh, right, exactly. So, yeah, but, but no, 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 stay, no, stay, at, at my age, stay out of the mosh. But, you know, I think that, you know, the Slayer fans and mosh pits, I think they, don't they just kind of assume it means just to, like, attack each other? Right. Right? Well, I mean, it's good that they didn't, like, set up an altar, because it is the Farewell Tour. They may have uh, sacrificed you doing that time, so. <laughs> Send this guy up. <laughs> hey, they're all clearing out of the way. I wonder what's going on. Hey, they're, I'm getting right up to the front. This is great. Yes. It'll be like, it'll be like Aurelian with it, with the pointing. <laughs> I roll the, I roll right, one man. in, with a one in 2000 chance. Yeah. Tom Araya or whatever points at me. That That's dude, right. the dude in the Oxford buttoned out, bring him to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the humanity. Exactly. Exactly. So. It would almost be like a Guar concert where, you know, they used to throw body blood parts and everything. And, and this time they just, they still, they throw your parts around. So that'd exactly. be great. So um, let's go over our announcements. We have a great show today. Uh, and again, last, last time we met, we had a great show. And then we had a, uh, a great live play that's still a lot of great comments from the Aurelian live play. So uh, congratulations to you for hosting that. Oh, and to, and to you uh, and, and to Rob Ritchie. For helping yes. us with the great, uh, the great guy through Aurelian. Flambeau. Uh, so we, we had a great time with that. And again, that is done because of our uh, patrons and thanks for their help. So uh, as we said, GrogCon is currently delayed till next year, but we're having our summer tournament coming up. Uh, that's July 24th through 26th. Uh, the, the, the thing we need to talk about really quick is we, we don't have a Grog Talk scheduled at this point because of the tournament. So we may have one thrown in there because we have some things we have to talk about, but that's going to be on a uh, play it by ear. We'll know more as we get closer to the event. But the So what's going to happen is offline, we're going to have live online, you know, offline. We're not going to stream the tournament because obviously if we stream it, the people who go later will see that module and get uh may may not be uh trustworthy with that so <laughs> that's nice right that, so, that, that, that's gonna really bring in the patron money exactly we can't trust you guys we can't trust you but well, they're, all okay. they're all chaotic neutral everyone's chaotic neutral. well but there are tremendous prizes up for grabs oh, that's and true. the oh. honor of being the winner of the grog summer grog uh con tournament uh Seats are extremely limited. So if you're interested, go out to the meetup and sign up. And then in the comments, put what we have four dates, four times that we're doing the game. Put them in preference. Our preferences will go to obviously patrons and to our local group because this was really for them. But now we've opened it up. Uh, we may have some special guests as well. So uh, if you are a patron, you're, you know, we're definitely going to try to get you in. If you're not a patron and you want to be, go to patron.com slash grog talk. Uh, so, but we do need to see later this week if we can fit in a grog talk to do some of the things like the Dragon magazine you wanted to go over. Indeed. All right. So, uh, but if you can't wait for that, you can't make that, not a problem. We have the uh, Grognards Guild Online, which uh, DMs Josh and Brian are running games on Fridays right now. 
Uh, if you want to know more about that, you can go to meetup.com, look up uh, Central Florida Grognard's Guild, or go to our Discord. Uh, Discord, uh, we have a Discord channel. It's in the show notes here. Why don't you join up? Uh, I'm, I'm going to be scheduling, uh, uh, I'm going to be creating a patron-only channel for the Grog Empire, because as you know, there's been a lot of controversy lately in the Grog Empire. There has been moves by various members, and alliances are being formed. So we need to provide them a forum to adjudicate this. So maybe we should have a, you know, a summit. Right? A summit? Camp a David council. or something? A council, right? A council, council. council of Elrond? Right. The uh, council of whatever. We have to decide what we're going to call it. Mm-hmm. The, ca- the council at the... Uh, at the Shoney's off of uh, <laughs> 441. <laughs> That's okay, Scourge, because you are, you're part of the inner circle, so you'll be part of that as well, because you're the provocateur. He's concerned because he's, he's not a patron. But he's more than a patron. He, is, he, he has given so many items to us. So. We're, not, we're not planning to off Vic. No, not That'd directly. That would be ridiculous. Who even suggested that? That would be uh, that, crazy. I think he was commenting that if I made a patron-only channel, he would not be getting on that. So it's, a, it's for patrons only and those who Vic. are part of the Grog Empire. And Vic. Vic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that'll be great. Um, so if you are not in the game, and also Brian has been, uh, as time uh, allows, he runs games during the week. He's on Skype and Discord where he'll say, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about running a game on, let's say, Wednesday, and you can join up. So if you're ever looking for an AD&D game, uh, we have that for you as well. Uh, giveaways, uh, as we showed last time, uh, our care package from Angry Dwarf Games came. We've got some groggy light-ups and modules to give away. We're going to give them away after the tournament because we still haven't decided what we're going to give away for the tournament. We know there'll be some trophy that I'll have to spend more money sending to someone than the actual cost of the trophy, but that's okay. Um, and there'll be some other things as well. I just have to say, groggy light-ups sounds like something I would see in the Sky Mall <laughs> magazine on a plane. That's right. Flipping through. <laughs> First, you're confused because maybe the mask is fogging up your Right. Face. What is that? That's a groggy light-up. That's right. That's awesome. That'd be great. Uh, you know. We should have a catalog, Grog Mall. Well, we have some shirts. We have some swag. You know, obviously some of it would be from uh, Angry Dwarf. Uh, you know, it would be an amalgamation, but people want our moderate evil T-shirt. Um, you know, they want uh, the Throb and Tingle magic shop. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot of things that we, we, could, we could put out there. So uh, Yeah, there's a lot of role-playing to be done with that shirt. Yes, uh, you know Saul's uh, identity shop. You know, there's so many, so many things that people would want to do. So, uh, what you know, what we do need is we need someone who can do artwork. Because if we could do that, then we would put that up. I need to talk to. Uh, I need to put that up with. Um, oh, sh- uh, oh, I forgot his name. It's terrible. I'm having a brain fart here. But he's one of our local D and D folks who said he would do some artwork for us. I need oh, to really? talk to him about that. And if I could do a shout-out, because, you know, yeah. I have commissioned someone to do artwork for my Gnome Skull module, which I have, I'm going to be contributing to uh, Vic's collection of adventures. And so I'd like to do a shout-out to Yuri Prokowski-Domingos, uh, who's uh, doing the artwork for that. So I'm really impressed with his work. Been really, really happy with what he's done for me so far. So, 
So what's interesting about this, and, and I better be careful because it's probably going to cost me money, but you mentioned, true, you are the writer of Gnome Skull, but that is a property of Grog Khan. And oh, Grog yeah, Khan. that'd be great. So, I get, so what you're saying is I get reimbursed. <laughs> where do I send the receipts? Perfect. Is that where you're going with this? That's, that's exactly where I was going with it. But, so. I did, but, I, but I forgot to fill out the pre-approval, the spend right. authorization form, didn't I? Is it, is it, does it, I looked for it. On our website, I it drove me crazy. I couldn't find the spend authorization form. I was yes. it, where, where is that? Well, there's a workflow that comes from you to me, and, and then it's back got your little finance. face on there. Now it's like pending with you. That's right. <laughs> so, it's, it's right. Uh, actually, I'm, I'm arms across as I'm looking at. Oh, we Josh, have, go ahead. I'm sorry. When we have spend authorization forms, please. That's when we quit. That is the end. That's right. That's it. That's it. We're done. Well, all kidding aside, yes, if you wanted to spend money on that, that would certainly be fine because um, while we did publish that for our folks, having it with artwork, I'm sure they would appreciate that as well. So just let me know when you're done. But Josh, DM Josh, our good friend, says he has direct access to artists who will do this for free. So there you go. Oh, okay. So I will get you. He's on Discord, so shoot him a note on Discord. Um uh, so, yes, thank you, Josh. We appreciate that. That would be great. All right. So we do have a new, it's not really a new patron, sort of a new patron, um, that has has decided that he wants a title, which is awesome. So Randall Case is is worthy of a title today. Oh, so he, he was a patron, but he had he, he he wasn't sure yet he was ready for a title. He was he what? was concerned about the power, I guess. Well, listen, this is this is the worst time. He's, does he realize he's entering a, a world in flames? Yes, but that's, you know, they, this is when co- with change is when people can take over and conquer. Oh, we already have an order for a moderate evil T-shirt, so there you go. <laughs> Gene, uh, he wants, he wants to get, Vic wants to get one for Jeannie, which would be ninety nine ninety nine. Wow. That seems expensive for Is Vic. it, you think? Yeah. All right, we'll cut it in he half. Gave us 50 bucks. A bunch of swag here. Uh, <laughs> All right, we'll cut it in half. <laughs> is there? Are you are you having money problems, Dan? Is something going <laughs> right. on? Do we need to talk about? That's right. Yeah, my D and D habit. I got right. I got to feed my D and D habit. You know, I mean, you've seen the eBay prices; they're not cheap. <laughs> That's right. This uh, second first printing of something is right. You know, they don't. They're not. They're hard to find. So. Uh, Randall Case will be uh, claiming the great state of Maryland. Okay, fantastic. The, the crab state or something? I don't know what they're... What they're oh, it's for lovers, too. It is for lovers. I think Virginia's for lovers. Oh, I think you're right. Maryland is crabs. Yes. Virginia's That's af- lovers. After you have lovers, you get the crabs. You go to <laughs> you Maryland. Get- you, you bring your lover to Maryland to get crabs. I have no, no? comment. Okay. Let's roll. They're, they're great crabs. I've been there. It's wonderful. Okay. So Had you just you, been in Virginia? Uh, no, not recently. Okay. All right, let's do it. What am I rolling? Okay. Uh, you you need to roll a D15. Am I allowed to roll? Or have yes. I been banned? No, you've not been banned. Okay. No, I know we're going to... And actually, Dan wants us to get a virtual dice rolling because he feels like some of my comments... Not questioning, but observing. See, it's not questioning. I'm observing. I'm observing... You're implying... I'm not implying. I'm observing well, the I'm fact inferring. that you are inferring. Can't help that. That divine intervention seems to go up, it seems to be statistically higher than the actual event should be. I'm, that's all that seems to be. It's, it could be over the next ses- few sessions it'll smooth out, but right now it's higher. With that said, please roll a d30 and divide by two. Six, that would mean a three. 
three. Okay, we have another general, the general. This is perfect for the times. We need a general, don't we? Right, we need more generals. Less chamberlains. I wonder which side he's I mean, gonna they, go on. Uh, well, that's true. Randall Vic Case. versus the world, okay? Well, uh, Vic's got some allies too, yep. So now a D30. Straight up D30? Yes, sir. 28. Eternal, wow, I like that. Wow, this is a good one. This is Randall what we Case, need. The general, his eternal. Well, we need he could be like that. the savior to take down Vic. <laughs> in a in a time of uncertainty. In a time of uncertainty. A hero time. rises. <laughs> That's right. From Maryland. Maryland, <laughs> land of crabs. Okay. <laughs> we should. I hope the I hope the monster today is a giant crab. That'd be hilarious. That would be. If, if it, then I don't mind if you fudge the dice. If you know the role that's necessary to get a giant crab <laughs> and you figure that out, that would be great. All right, another D thirty. Twenty four. Let's see, 30, 29, 28, 27, 26, 25, 24? 24. Piety, eternal piety. Wow, he sounds like the, the, the General, chosen one. Eternal piety. Right, now a D15. 18, that would be a 9. 9. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. This Viscount. Viscount. That's pretty good, being a Viscount. Uh, now a D60. Don't tell me how to do it, okay? That'd be insulting. I know. I didn't say I didn't say a word. <laughs> okay, so we're on the upper half, the high end, and I've got a uh, a nineteen. So that would be uh, a what, lot. Forty nine. Yes. Forty five, forty six, forty seven, forty eight, forty nine. Chivalrous. Wow, it is this is like? Yes. He is our righteous. Yes. Chivalrous. Okay, and now this is perfect because it's against the scourge. Are you sensing? Well, I'm sensing lawful good here. Are you? I'm sorry. I'm sensing lawful good here. Oh, clearly, yeah. Up against the chaotic evil Vic, which he said he is an agent of change. He—that's what Vic says. He likes to think of himself as an agent of change. I think that's what the Joker would say, and everyone pretty much thinks the Joker is chaotic evil. So, oh, so yeah, he is. Yeah, okay, all right, all right. What am I rolling? D thirty. Of course, now it'll be slaughter. That'd be great, wouldn't it? He he's a complicated guy. Twenty. Twenty. Uh, let's see, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. Hero. It was just almost enslaver, but instead it was hero. Yeah, that, that would be strange. All right, so uh, I'll send this to you in chat so you have it. Wow, that's fantastic. I'm feeling better about this. I think we're getting out of the abyss. This could this could be the turning point which would be awesome, because we need it. Uh, all right, so we, we, as the power of the Grog Emperors, bestow the following title to uh, Randall Case. So, on the power vested in me by ourselves, I hereby declare Randall Case, the general, his eternal piety. Viscount, chivalrous, hero of Maryland. Congratulations, sir. Welcome to the Grog Empire. May your reign and your... Tr and your Tribute flow eternally, like your name. Are his armies marching yet? <laughs> I think they were probably were marching. That's why he probably said, oh, if I'm going to attack, I might as well have a, a name to go with. <laughs> if I'm going to die, I might as well. Right. Something to put on the statue. <laughs> That's exactly right. So, uh, well, very good for him. He's our only hope. He is our only hope, unless he has a sister. There's another. <laughs> is that wrong? Does that sound creepy? I think it I does. just watched that last night. I'm watching him again. Oh, good for you. Thank you.
Are you seeing the originals? Or are you actually going to watch it? No, in, I'm watching Disney in Plus. In sequential order or in order of release? I can't watch the first three. I refuse. We're watching four, five, and six simply so that way I'll watch, I guess, nine, the last one. And I'm really upset. Well, we can't go into this because we don't have a lot of time. I'm very upset that they put Java in, what, uh, Empire? Well, come on. I mean, not Empire. I mean, uh, yeah, Empire, right? Yeah, Empire. They add a little clip. Didn't Lucas add a little clip? Yes. Where John, I mean, come on. Whatever. We need to move on. Okay. Don't get me started. Well, that's it's okay. This is uh, last time I checked. This is our show. We can talk about whatever you'd like to talk oh, no, about. No, Star Wars. It was Star Wars, right? That they added a clip of Jabba because yes. Han is leaving, right. and Jabba is like, "Oh, you owe me money." Well, come on. All right. Let's move well, on. I like the original. The guy that they had. They had like a big, giant, like guy in a minstrel, not a minstrel suit, like a like a my, my, burgermeister as the actor that because they were going to see giant later, and they had some. <laughs> guy walking around, and then they put in the you know the oh. the giant thing. So both of them are pretty fun. Stay on target. Well, that could be some more things than that. All right. So Dan, why don't you introduce our guest? Absolutely. So it is our pleasure to have Skip Williams on the show today. Skip, of course, grew up in Lake Geneva, playing D and D there in the mid seventies. He worked at the Dungeon Hobby Shop. He was a TSR employee from nineteen eighty to 83, ultimately becoming the Gen Con coordinator. He would later return to TSR, be the author of Sage Advice, and he worked at Wizards of the Coast as well, one of the authors of the third edition of D&D, and he is currently an event coordinator for Gary Con. So, Skip, welcome to the show. Welcome. Happy to be here. All right. So, you know, we've had a lot of guests on who grew up in Lake Geneva. And a question I've not asked anybody is, could you, what was Lake Geneva like in the 60s and the 70s? Because so many of you knew each other. Right? I mean, you were in Boy Scouts with Michael Bernard. I saw you. Gary Gygax, I read, had come over to your house even before he was doing D&D. And, and of course, you went to school with Ernie. So maybe you can just tell us a little bit. What was Lake Geneva like at that point? Are you, are you asking about the, the town in general? Are you asking about yeah. the gaming community? Because there's sort Let's, of two different slices of things. So. I'd like to start with the town. Just, just We've never, you know, we had so many people from Lake Geneva. And could you just give us a sense of what the town was like? All right. So, well, Lake Geneva was then and remains now sort of Chicago's northern playground. That's actually been that way for years and years. The whole lake is surrounded by mansions owned by rich people from Chicago. So names like Wrigley and Maytag. Um, I can't remember the name, but the fellow who started the Diamond Match Company was there. Uh, his, uh, his mansion actually became a friary for a while. I'm not sure what that building is used for right now. Hmm. Um so it's always been Chicago's playground, and that's been that way. It was in the '70s. That's exactly the way it was. I mean, the town had maybe five thousand people in it year-round. Thirty-five thousand people in the town on any given day in the summer. Okay, and and you you were in Boy Scouts, right, with Michael Marnard? Scouts, yeah, Michael Marnard was a couple of years ahead of me. Terrorized the heck out of me, actually. I I was gonna. <laughs> we had Michael on the show recently, and so I, I, I was wondering. I was hoping you might mention something about Michael, because Michael Menard and the Boy Scouts. I don't know. It just seems like a question that's begging to be asked. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, as I recall, Mike became an Eagle Scout, and now he's a minister. So, 
Ernie. Oh, and er, you knew Ernie. You went to school with Ernie Gygax, correct? Ernie, yes. And Gary, I think I, I read somewhere, Gary had actually been over to your house, right? Had, had looked at something of your parents, I believe. I, Gary had been, I don't even remember. It might have been before I was born. Hmm. He actually came over to my dad's house to look at his ham radios once. I'm not sure if he was, what that was all about even. It just, it gave me, doing that research gave me a sense that Lake Geneva seemed like a very small community. I mean, it's, it sounds like the place where it wouldn't be surprising that Gary Gygax had been at your house because it just sounded like the kind of place, I could be wrong, but it sounded like the place where pretty much everybody knew everyone. I mean, I assume everyone went to Badger High School and, and everyone knew everyone. Well, I mean, that's true with small towns even today. Yeah, small town America is described as a place where you're no longer a stranger after 15 minutes and you're still a newcomer after 15 years. That's, that's was Lake even then, maybe a little bit less now as this town is sort of going into, into the new economy and not the online economy and all other stuff. But... but so a small town, but my understanding is you didn't know about Gen Con for a while. Is that right? I did not. How is that? So how does that happen, right? Because tell the story, right, you, how you learn about Gen Con. So I learned about Gen Con because there was a front page picture in the Lake Geneva Regional News, which was a weekly, is still a weekly newspaper published in Lake Geneva, covers covers Lake Geneva itself and all the little towns at the southern end of the lake. And there was a story, and because and, you had not been a war, like so many people had been war gamers, and then they found their way to role-playing. That, that was not your backstory, right? No, I sort of became a war gamer and a role-player all at the same time. And how did that happen? So who, who was it that introduced you to war gaming and uh, role-playing? Um, actually, well, the first war game I played was actually when I finally went to Gen Con. Um, so I saw this little picture and I was just attracted to the little tanks. They were, I think they were actually playing uh, Gary's Tractics Rules at the time. And went, oh, cool, little tanks, because I've always kind of been interested in little tanks. And, oh, wow, you know, and this, and what I, this LG, Lake Geneva, uh, Lake Geneva Tactical Studies Association. I, who are these people? I have no idea. Well, this is kind of cool, but this happened the previous weekend. So, But then I went to school later and ran into Don Art, who was a fellow who lent his name to the invulnerable coat of iron because Gary always, he always was afraid of taking damage. Uh, and he had this little map. I don't, I don't know if he was that. I'd never played with Don, so I don't really know. But Gary, Gary seemed to think he was always deathly afraid of taking damage. So not that Don ever had that particular artifact, but he uh, something that Gary thought he might he might want. So Don had this little map, and it was a World War II campaign that he was involved in. So we talked about it a little bit about playing tactics and things like that. And then... And then sort of that was the end of the school year, and then I got to Badger the next fall, and by then, E&D was out. So there was a fellow student who I had been to grade school with. His name was Marcus Kurowski, 
who, as I told Peter, eventually, last time I saw him, he was playing the accordion professionally. Hmm. <laughs> he had D&D. And so he, introduced, so he introduces you to, to D&D. And uh, so my understanding is you started playing with him just one-on-one games. Is that right? That's correct. And do you remember your first character? A cleric of some. I know, it was a cleric. I kept, well, good for you. I got lost. I got lost in a in a, in a tomb and kept running into the same group of whites. They <laughs> kept going around in circles in the dungeon and they kept turning these whites. And, and, and you still are you a first level cleric? I have. I don't probably. And so someone and put you, someone put a white in a first level dungeon. <laughs> Who even, would do that? I don't even remember. Marcus was very big on story. He would be a story guy now, less less about rules and more about story, really. Ernie used to say, there's all these little odd things that just happen in Marcus's games. Well, these days people would just say he's a story guy. Uh, it was more important. And and what so I assume are we, was were you playing then obviously it was OD and D. So so what year are we talking roughly? And are we talking brown fall, box, white fall box? Fall of seventy four. So fall of seventy four. Right after the game out. The game was only a couple of months old. But the Dungeon Hobby Shop was also starting up at that time. So hanging around there, started playing chain mail, started playing tractics started playing board games all at the same time, all, all in that fall of 74. Hmm. Okay. And you, and you end up joining the club, right? I said Badger High School has a gaming club? Correct. Okay. And um, so tell us a little bit about that, because I know that you've talked a little bit about Joe Fisher was one of the members of that club. The president at the time, I think, yeah. Okay. Who, who, who's, who's, creates the first ranger. So tell us a little bit, because I think I read somewhere online that you, that group was not as welcoming uh, of you as, as perhaps you would have wanted. No, no, there was, there was definitely a bias against incoming freshmen. There's no question about that. So, 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 so gaming hazing, kind of. As it were, yes. So, <laughs> uh, and you played, and, and so at a certain point in time, I believe also that you start playing, I'd never heard of this game, uh, Warriors of Mars. Warriors of Mars, yep. Ne- I had never, so that was news to me. So what was Warriors of Mars? How did you get uh, started playing that? So Duke Seyfried, until, until his recent demise, really big name in miniatures. He was running, co-running Heritage Models down in Texas at the time, and he got into do his head that he wanted to do Farsoom miniatures. Green men and Thoats and Kalots and all the things from the from Burroughs' uh, Barsoom books. So he, I, I don't know, kind of, kind of got tied into the old boy net that existed at the time and said... Why don't you use your new company, Gary, and write a set of rules so that I can sell my Barsoom miniatures? So they, Gary wrote the rules for Barsoom miniatures battles, and Brian Bloom, who would soon become one of the partners in TSR, wrote a role-playing sup- supplement so that the Barsoom book was very much like the original chainmail game, it was many, many pages of miniature rules and then a short section at the end for role playing. So 
Bernie Gygax came up to me one day and said, do you play any games other than D&D? And I said, sure, I'll try anything. Mm. And, and, then did, we and played Bar- then we played Warriors of Mars. And did you know Ernie before the gaming? Was Ernie in the gaming club? Is that how you met him, or did you know him before? Yeah. I'm sorry? I had been in grade school with Ernie, but we had sort of lost track of each other until <laughs> high school. Okay. And tell us about, so I think I read online that you bought or, or heard in the interview that you bought your first copy of OD&D, uh, right, off of, what was it, uh, Don K's porch? Don K's porch, yes. Don K had passed before I came on the scene, mm. but his widow was still peddling TSR product off their front porch before Gary took it over and started peddling TSR product out of his basement. <laughs> and are we, so are we talking brown box or white box? Brown box. The white box came much later, actually. Okay. Okay. Do you still have that brown box? <laughs> no, I have the books, but I don't have the box anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Just need to get a box. And well, who, who would have thought at the time, right? Yeah. I mean, who would have thought at the time that these boxes would be so valuable? So. <laughs> so you, can blame another, you can blame another company, another Wisconsin company for that. So the Dremel Company, which is located in Racine or Kenosha, makes these little handheld tools, which are beloved of jewelry makers and hobbyists everywhere, including a lot of gamers. But there was this, my dad had this old Dremel box, which was metal and very large and had a very sturdy clasp. And it was a perfect size to put my three original D&D books in, plus all my supplements, plus my Warriors of Mars game. So I took all of that out of the brown box and I stuffed it into the Dremel box. And then I lost track of the brown box. So. And out goes the brown box. Uh, what were you thinking? <laughs> I wasn't thinking at all. <laughs> Superman won. Can you know, what can you say? <laughs> right. So, um, so, did I, so tell us about the Dungeon Hobby Shop then, right? So the Dungeon Hobby Shop opens up there and I, you said you started hanging out there a lot. I did. Okay. I hung out there so long, they finally gave me a job. <laughs> and when did you, tell us about when you first met Gary, if you remember. I don't really remember. Um, I think probably I must have come home, from, come home from school with Ernie one day. And there he, and it, there he was. I think that's probably how it happened. And is it fair to say that you started paying more attention to role-playing games than your schoolwork at Badger High? My parents certainly thought so. <laughs> <laughs> I said James encourages his son to play. I think he's crazy, but that's I wouldn't let my daughter near it. It's too addictive. Uh, so okay, so they eventually uh, they offer you a job, and I think an Ernie's working there too, uh, right? I assume. At the same time, so 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 tell us a little bit about working at the Dungeon Hobby Shop. So there was this house at the corner of Williams and Marshall Streets in Lake Geneva, which uh, the the company bought or the partnership bought. You know, with the idea of getting the company out of Gary's basement, and uh, they had turned the ground floor into the hobby shop, whopping two rooms. It's 2.30. And then upstairs was TSR's offices, and the former kitchen was the shipping department, and the basement was the warehouse. 
And so did people have to come through? So the people that were working at TSR, I realized at that point in time, it's very few. But so did they have to go through the hobby shop? So basically you're sitting there, I'm trying to get a sense of this. You're sitting in the hobby shop and I see him, you know, Gary Gygax walks through upstairs and goes to his office. Yeah, there was a staircase like a lot of Midwestern houses have or a lot of traditional houses have. The, you walk through the front door. Actually, there was a, an all-weather, so-called all-weather porch there, a glassed-in porch. But you walked up under the porch and walked through the door, and you were faced with the stairs up to the second floor right there, and the hobby shop itself was off to the left. So there wasn't much, there wasn't really, uh, it wasn't a terrible inconvenience. People didn't have to go through the shop to, to get to their offices. They just, if you were working at TSR, you went upstairs to the offices. And, and how many people were working in the hobby shop when you started working there? Oh, two or three with, you know, out of nine or ten that was TSR. So. And so who was your boss? Who was my boss? I didn't, yeah. Ryan Bloom, I guess, was ostensibly my boss, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, and so tell us about Terry, a typical day. I thought he was my boss, but Terry Kuntz was just working at the hobby shop, so. Okay. And Ryan so, certainly the person who gave me my marching orders every day. So, okay, okay. And so, what? So, what were you doing at this? So, what were your marching orders? I mean, how many people came into the hobby shop? I mean, did people start eventually? I assume eventually people started coming from out of town, perhaps, to come to the hobby shop. Almost immediately. Almost okay. Immediately. Really? Hmm. There just wasn't that many places to buy games at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, model railroad shops occasionally stocked games um some bookstores stocked games there really wasn't very many places where you could go to buy games and this <laughs> this was before credit cards even really became a big thing so it was actually rather difficult to buy games mail order you had to you had to fill out a paper form and put it in the mail with a check so it was not, it was actually took a bit of an effort. So if there was a place to go, um, you went. And of course, being associated with TSR certainly was a draw as well. Mm. But as far as what I did, whatever needed doing, I mean, that included mowing the lawn and washing the company van and waiting on customers and packing orders or unloading trucks whatever needed to be done and any particular afternoon. And at this point in time, you're also, you're, you're assume you're gaming still and you play test some of the, the famous modules, correct? Such as the G series and the D series at that time. Correct. Okay. So, 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 so how did that happen? Right. So, um, cause I, my understanding is Gary had a number of different groups. Right? There's a lot of people, right? There's like 20 plus people and he would have different groups for different games. So how did it happen that you were able to play test some of those games? Well, Gary used whoever was available at the time. So the original D and D play testers were pretty much all gone from Lake Geneva at that point. Mike Menard and Chip Menard and Tim Wilson and some of those people who were credited as D&D playtesters, they'd gone off to college. They weren't there anymore. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, I was in the playtest group because I was one of the people who was available in town. 
And and what do you so other than the G series, the D series, any other ones that do you recall particularly that you play tested? Uh, Temple of Elemental Evil, or at least what became the Hamlet of the Hamlet of Hamlet, not well the Temple itself. Gary's Temple did not wind up um, resembling the the Temple of the Product very much. Um, but yeah, the Hamlet of Hamlet. Um, and, and okay, so uh, tell us a little bit about Gary's style. You know, we've heard so many different stories. We've heard about him sometimes being behind a filing cabinet so you can only hear his voice. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what it was like to have Gary as a dungeon master? So, Gary was a big fan of the GM screen. As soon as somebody put one of those together, he was using it. Uh, hit, his, hit the maps. Um, Fairly short on narrative style, but he always, there was always something memorable. It was always a memorable character that he put, that he used it at least once. So there was always a, a strong storytelling element, at least at the beginning of every seg of segment. And other than that, Gary was a big fan of, of feeding out the rope and waiting to see if people hung themselves and was not particularly prone to using kid gloves. So made a bad mistake in Gary in Gary's game. Um, it was time to roll up a new character. I think didn't, didn't Ern, I think James didn't Ernie tell us something about uh, his favorite character was killed off by his dad and he just died. Yeah. yeah. He's in tears and exactly. So or, all right, so who had so suffer was kind of uh, is it never heard him actually say that, but that's a pretty good summation. <laughs> you had a pretty strong wargaming background, and you know you you were supposed to make decisions that your character would make, and if you made a bad decision or if you luck one against you, then um, then too bad. Although I I rather suspect that uh, there was a little bit of fudging going on behind the GM screen. So that the whole group didn't go down all at once. I suspect that that is the case. Although oh. I don't think you would admit that. But yeah. if you made an obvious, if you made an obvious boneheaded move, you know, then yeah, you that was it. You suffered. Was there a favorite adventure that you play tested? So just one that you remember being particularly memorable that you had a particularly good time going through. Well, the whole G series was pretty epic, all things considered. We started by going through the front door and dealing with the sleeping giants and went tiptoeing around for a while in the upper works and ran into the giantist and uh, tr tried our best not to get noticed. And then eventually we got down into the dungeons and and then we just sort of killed everything that moved because we thought we could, and we were right. And I think he, he, I read somewhere online where you said that Gary had been uh, somewhat critical that you guys hadn't tried to parlay, I guess, with more giants and make friends with them and, 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 and make them allies. And, and, and you had not gotten any hint of that, apparently, during the adventure that was even possible. Uh, yeah, Gary wrote somewhere, I, I think it was possibly in his introduction to the first versions that that we had mercilessly killed everything that we met, which is true, we did, but yeah, it didn't really occur to us that there was 
too much, too much, too many other options. Did you, uh, so when you're doing a play test, was it like, this is a play test and I want your feedback or he just ran the module and, and, and you kind of, the adventure and you kind of said, oh, this is good, this is not good. Did you know that it was going to be a product or you, how, did, how did that process work? Uh, I was not aware that it was actually going to be a product. It, it became kind of obvious from the way Gary was talking later. No, it was more uh, along the lines of him just figuring out um what he needed to add, I think, more than anything else. I don't think he was terribly worried about balance or anything else, but he was worried about what a group might do once they got loose in there. So, you know, what sort of eventualities did they need to cover? Hmm. So I don't know this for sure, but for example, each of the adventures, particularly the Frost Giants and the Fire Giants adventures, there's a section in there for what happens if the party retreats and comes back. And I'm pretty sure that that came out of the play tests, just as an example. Yeah, it's just curious that, you know, playing a module that you think is done versus, you know, we're going to be play testing our tournament module. We're having a tournament in a couple of weeks. It's a different, you know, you, you're, you, approach the mo- you approach the adventure a little bit different if you're testing it versus running it. And that's why I was curious if you knew it was it was done or not done, and and would you change your play style because of that? We ran it. I mean, we were using our own. We were using our campaign characters. So okay. We were, we ran at it like we were like we were doing any other game. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and then and so you head off to college. And uh, were you playing during college? Did you did you play when you came back for summers? Pretty much came back, yeah. Came back and played on the weekends from time to time and played in the summers. Never actually played while I was at school. <laughs> but I was DMing at the time, so most of my time was spent prepping for my campaign. I didn't have a lot of time to play while I was away at school. Hmm. And uh, when you're in school, you apparently you decide that you'd like to become a writer, correct? At some point, yes. And and uh, I've read that it's sort of in particular, yeah. I'm sorry. Thanks to one professor in particular, yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then I guess at some point the light bulb goes off. That well, I want to be a writer, and wait, there's TSR, and you put them together. Correct. And so how does that? So how did it? How did you end up being hired by T? I we've heard. I know poor. Poor Alan Hammock. I, Gary apparently what used to send out. <laughs> I don't. You probably didn't have to take the test. Didn't, didn't Gary would send out a test where he would like quiz you on like your knowledge of the pole arm and you had to fill it out and send it in. Did you have to take a test? I did do that once. Yes. <laughs> did you? When did? For which job? Um, I think it was. I think I just took the test that he sent out for the original group of designers, which. I didn't get hired as a designer. I just kept my part-time job. So, so was this, this? When was this? this when was you were 70, 75, 76. Oh, okay. Oh, so you were yeah. So you were pretty young at the time, obviously, yeah. when you took that. Okay. Uh, so you never got the test back, like with markings. No. Okay, <laughs> that would be worth something. <laughs> I'm, not sure, I, I'm not sure he handed any of the tests back. <laughs> 
I think he could be probably would be brutal. I would think I wouldn't want to get my test back. Uh, so okay, so you come, so you apply for the job. So how was it that you got a job then? In 1980, you're going to start at TSR. Your hope, of course, at the time, um, is is to be a writer. Um, what what were you hired as? So I became the assistant Gen Con coordinator because uh, they had the hobby shop had moved from the house to a to a building in the center of town, and they they had they'd hired a lot of the designers' wives to stock it. Is what they did. What they did, and there wasn't there weren't hours for me at the shop anymore. So I became Joe Orlowski's assistant running Gen Con. And and was it your hope that you were going to be able to do some writing as well? Actually, I would gotten involved in the Gen Con job before I really had made the made the decision that I wanted to be a writer. But yeah, I did. I did what I did at Gen Con was a lot of editing because we were doing the event catalog. So again, before the internet, so we would get these handwritten forms back where people were submitting events, and I would sit there and translate people's chicken scratchings and then and then hammer them out on a typewriter. So so there yeah. wasn't tabletop events at that point in time? Was it tabletop <laughs> events? Yeah, all the pre registration was done by hand. The skip, skip <laughs> events, as they were called. <laughs> Just a brutal process. Yeah. And, and so you were working on Gen Con before you went off to college, it sounds like. I was working on Gen Con while I was at college. I got you. Okay, okay. Uh, and then, so you come back and you are the assistant event, your assistant coordinator, and very quickly you become the coordinator, right? That's correct. Because Joe Joe leaves, I think, very shortly after you arrived. And so, tell me a little bit about that feeling. I mean, that sounds. I would be pretty stressed out. I mean, you're 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 a young guy. And you and, and Gen Con is growing, and I believe I got the stats. Gen Con grew, I think, while you were there. It's it's growing. Uh, we got like forty five hundred, five thousand people coming. Um, what what was your feeling? Were, were you stressed about it? No, there was no time to be stressed because it was one emergency after another. And keep in mind, uh, since I was full time. Uh, it was also decided at that point that there would be actually be a convention every quarter. So there was Gen Con in August. Mm-hmm. There was Winter Fantasy in January. There was Autumn Revel in October, and there was Spring Revel in April. So essentially, I was doing a convention every three months. Only one of them was a monster. Why, why do I have a feeling? I have a scene in my head where Gary's like Captain Kirk and you're Scotty. Correct. Is that fair? Very, very apt. I'm thinking, oh, she's got Captain Kirk. I can't do it. Gary, you know, I don't know that Gary ever really appreciated how much work Gen Con really required because Gary could remember the days when he did Gen Con by himself. And I, I'm really not sure that he ever really appreciated what it was like to do a convention that um, that Gen Con became at all. Can, so can you take us through it? So what would happen, right? So, and we'll just talk about the one, I guess, Gen Con. What, 
what happens? I mean, what do you have to do to organize Gen Con in the early 1980s? And I assume, is that, how many people were, is anyone working for you? Um, I had uh, some part-timers here and there, again, often designers' wives. Eventually, a high school pal of mine who was, had been thinking about joining the Army, he was working in shipping, so that was Dave Conant, became my assistant at one point. Um, and the two of us pretty much, we, uh, we chopped all the wood, carried all the water. Wow. So uh, the typical year would be there would be a period of cleanup after the previous year's show, you know, collecting all the lost and found items. Oh, so um, literally clean up. Oh, yeah, literally clean up. Yeah. <laughs> um, trying, to, trying to grab our tablecloths back and the park side staff. Um, yeah, that's a story I haven't really told. We used to. We used to have uh, bulk uh, green tablecloths cut for a lot of the tables. And we would try to get those back every year, but uh, the cleaning staff at UW Parkside would, would run down the hallways literally ahead of us and, and grab them. That's terrible. <laughs> it what? Not, it did not occur to me at the time to go over to the campus police station and say, I want to report a theft. Um but uh, so it goes. So, yeah, literally that. And then putting all the chairs back while the professor scowled at us because, um, yeah, academics, uh, they're just really charming people sometimes. Mm. So, so I have this. Uh-huh. Go ahead. No, I was just saying, I have this image of like these, you know, boxes like you'd have in stored for Christmas, like that says Gen Con written on it. And there's just a bunch of stuff in there that you then pull out to use each year. Well, there was some of that, but most a lot of that stuff was borrowed. So office supplies and stuff like that, I would sort of raid the company, you know, two weekends before, and then that would all have to go back. Yeah, and there were boxes and boxes of stuff. Okay, so you do the cleanup. So you grab. So you're literally the next year's convention starts with grabbing the stuff from the one that's just ended. What happens next? Uh, what happens next then is you start to make all the basic decisions for the coming year. For example, how much are we going to charge for? How much are we going to charge for pre-registration? How much are we going to charge for on-site registration? How much are we going to charge for a booth? All of that stuff, and start working on all the publications. We had a little handout mailer for exhibitors that had to be done. We had to get the pre-registration brochure started because that was going to be tipped in the Dragon every year, and that had to be that had to be coordinated with Dragon's publishing schedule. Um, there was also Autumn Revel to deal with as well because that came pretty hard on Gen Con's heels every year. And and how so? How would you rate a what would be a successful Gen Con? So when it came time for Gen Con to actually happen, and I said, were you are you nervous during the event, or at that point in time you're basically like it is what it is? It, it's I prepped, or were there fires to put out during the actual convention? Constantly. Okay. Constant like, fires to put out. Yeah. 
because one of the things that we did is we had we had the Parkside area war gamers and they sort of did their own thing. We tried to give them their marching orders and then the Parkside people, would, the PAW people would do that. And then they, we would pretty much strip TSR as well and say, okay, here's your job. And they would stand there and go, well, what do I do now? Hmm. It's like, well, you go do this now. So, so I would run station to station at the show and say, no, do it this way. And that would, that would happen for about four days. Where were people staying? Is there enough? I can't remember. We had somebody on the show where they had not made their first Gen Con. They didn't think they would need to make a reservation. Somebody show up. There's no place to stay. I mean, you're having around 5,000 people show up in Lake Geneva in the early 80s. Where where are people staying? Well, this isn't the big shows. And the shows that I was running, were, they were at UW Parkside in Kenosha. Oh, that's right. I said Lake Geneva. That's right. You were at Parkside well, at that point. I could not get a room. And during Gen Con, you could, I mean, you couldn't. There, there were no hotel rooms available from the Illinois state line up through. <laughs> hmm. so that was, yeah, that was part of part of my job as well was finding everybody who was working, key volunteers plus the TSR people. You know, finding you know slotting them into hotel rooms. Did and you? We would, I would give a give a roster to the the participating hotels and say, okay, here's the list of people. Give them a room. We have a we have a question from the chat. Did did you do? Were you worked on any of the regional ones like Gen Con South or any of the other branded ones, or is it just the ones in Wisconsin? I got stuck Gen Con East one year, um, but no. Otherwise, Gen Con South was its own thing. Okay. Yeah, the group that was doing Gen Con East one year they bailed. Oh wow! And we TSR was the last to know. <laughs> they they do they. They dispute that, but the fact of the matter is DSR was notified when the rest of the world was notified. Mm. And, of course, Gary said, well, we'll just do it ourselves. It's like, yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and who was we? <laughs> yeah, well, we was me. Right, it was Kip. So, did you, so any major fires that you remember, like just like, oh, my gosh, that was almost – a total, other than the Gen Con East issue, of course, but with Gen Con itself, any almost disasters or, in fact, disasters? Oh, uh, there, I mean, we don't have enough time. <laughs> um, you know, everything from people complaining about the menu at the little food kiosk at Parkside. It's like, sorry, I don't set the menu if you're, you're, you're not happy. There's not a lot I can do about that. Now, there's cheese on all the sandwiches, and I'm a Jew. Okay, well, um, here's a phone book, you know. <laughs> I think you're going to find a lot of kosher in Kenosha, but, but uh, you know, they're the vendors, and, you know, if you don't want to eat what college kids eat, then there's, there's not a lot I can do about that. Right. Um, mm. Yeah, making sure that, that uh, the exhibit area got set up and getting the exhibitors in, and I'm supposed to have this. Well, okay, well, you need to talk to Badger Expo, which was the equipment supplier, because what you get is what you get with a booth, a backdrop, and two side rails and a table per 10-foot booth. Did, did yeah. you get to have any fun at all? I'm going to buy it from Badger. What? Did you get to have any fun at all during Very Gen Con? 
Okay. Very little. Yeah. Uh, are you glad you did it though? In retrospect. Oh, it's a good thing. I mean, I imagine it's a little bit like climbing Mount Everest. It's great. It's great to say that you've done it. <clears throat> Not necessarily so pleasant to do it. Well, you have to do colonoscopies too, but no one sits there and says, "Hey." That's <laughs> I, I guess I'm glad I did it because you know it's you know better than. But yeah, so yeah. well, like that. Yeah. we. Uh, I mean, we have a very small, not even a fiftieth of what convention, and and we were going to try to do it ourselves and. Just the amount of work just to start something from the ground up is tremendous. And we, we joined on another convention, and it made our lives a lot easier. So, And, and the guy who ran it, Craig, who's hope if he's out there, I mean, right. he's constantly— our, our Skip Williams. Yeah, our, he's <laughs> constantly running around, and, you know, and people don't show up. And, you know, if you have a special guest, they, you know, where are they? And left, you know— I don't know. Did you have to monitor where Gary was? Did he have special times when he'd come talk or any, did he have, you know? <laughs> Gary, yeah, Gary had a schedule and Gary actually had a minder, so that wasn't a big deal. Oh, okay. Gary always uh, had a minder. And we didn't really do a lot with special guests at the time. There wasn't, I mean, there wasn't, really wasn't the facilities to do that. Yeah. And at age 20, and, you know, I was not really tied in to, all of the nuances of getting special guests either for that matter and too much to do. So, I mean, we would get somebody who would, you know, sort of fall into our laps from time to time, like Boris Vallejo mm. fell into my lap one year because he had been, he was doing some art for TSR. So, okay, well, we'll, you know, we'll schedule Boris to do a couple of, a, you know, a couple of talks, and then nobody, <laughs> nobody showed up to see Boris. Wow! <laughs> because everybody at Gen Con was there at a game. Um, so we we actually uh, a friend of mine, Don Snow, uh, departed from us some time ago. Enough, he was a very smart uh, psychologist by training, educator uh, as well, and he sort of pulled enough people to fill Boris's. And we had Gardner Fox, who was a favorite of Gary's, um, and a few people like that. And you know, you schedule them a talk, and that was and launched them. We don't have again because I was doing everything. There was there was not much chance to actually like schedule tracks of seminars, and because everything had to be put, everything had to be done at once. So. And uh, can you talk a little bit about you? You're you're doing some writing at this point. Right? So I know there was what the, the Shadowland adventure, which uh, doesn't get published, but you had right. Gary had had written it, and I believe that you had cl he had collaborated with you on it. But if my understanding is correct, it, it it doesn't get published. No, Gary did not write it. Okay. So Gary had this idea after the G series was such a phenomenal phenomenal success that if he could sell piles and piles of adventures if he just put his name on it. So his his grand plan was to get other people to write adventures and he would contribute something to them, put his name on it, and there would be these piles of sales and and he would split the proceeds with the actual author. And there was one taker for that deal, me. 
because I was not smart enough at the time to understand what he was up to. So bits and pieces of it got written and bits and pieces of it got published like uh, the Gloomwing Moth and the Tenebrous Worm and the Shadow Dragon are all creatures that were created for that that got published in the Monster Manual 2, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, and then, I don't know, 40 or 50 or 60 pages of manuscript that I generated. Um, and that was about it. Shades were also oh. from the model. showed up in Man Monster Manual, too. Cool. <laughs> in fact, that was the idea. Let's look. Let's have all these undead running around in Shadowland. Well, that doesn't sound like a very good idea to me because because undeads are undead are problematical. You have a cleric and you turn the ball, and if the cleric blows his roll, then the party is screwed. So let's let's do something else. Let's do something a little more atmospheric. So I, and then there were a, a host of magical items created that never did get published. Part of the unpublished stuff. But no, it was, I mean, it was pitched to me as a collaboration, but it was really, would have really been me ghostwriting it for him and him putting his name on it. So well, see, it fooled me. It happened. Okay. And I, yeah, I think at some point, I mean, we found online like a cover. It sounds like after you left, there was some thought that they might. I, I know in Dragon Magazine, there was an announcement that it was going to be coming out. And then I think after you left, there was even a cover for it produced. Um, Gary announced it in a Sorcerer Scroll. Hmm. Yes. Uh, right. And there were attempts to revive the product, especially after Gary started New Infinities. But it's it, three o'clock. It never, it never actually happened. No. Uh, can you can you talk a little bit about the transition from OD and D to, to first edition? So, you know, our show we focus on first edition, so obviously that's something we're very interested in. What was your view on the difference between OD and D and first edition? Did you have strong feelings about the difference when first edition started coming out? Well, from my point of view, first edition AD and D was really sort of the gestalt of the way everybody at TSR had been playing OD&D. So things that people did fairly consistently from campaign to campaign sort of codified and that Gary sort of pulling all of that together. So things like, you know, um... How do you handle initiative, which was never really made clear in OD and D, but or, or AD and D for that matter, either. But in expanding the spell list and um, just codifying all the stuff that people were picking up from between the lines out of the brown box, that's certainly that's certainly my take on it. I mean, that's what happened with a mod. If you remember, the Dungeon Master's Guide doesn't have chapters. It was, it was envisioned as just a series of short articles on how you handle things. So you don't have chapters. You just have these little paragraphs or longer sections. 
This is what happens when somebody becomes a lycanthrope. This is how you handle seizures, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then Gary went back and actually reworked the character classes. Again, I think just to make them more like the way everybody, or I shouldn't say everybody, but the way the bulk of people were playing them, the serious players were playing them. So things like making a, a more, a stronger differentiation between the classes. So let's not give everybody a D6, right? Let's, you know, let's go with more hit points for clerics and fighters in particular and less hit points for, less hit points for wizards and the rogues get the D6 that everybody else had. And things that have been explored a little bit in the Greyhawk supplement expanded. Gary used to say that one of the ideas behind AD&D was to just promote some consistency of play throughout the whole community. And I think that's, that's, not, that's as good a description of any, as any, of what the whole idea was. Okay, and uh, then you leave in, I believe, what, 1983? You leave, you leave TSR, and you do some freelancing work, uh, but you're, you're going to come back, right? So, and, and what you do, so you pick up sage advice, right? Roger Moore approaches you about sage advice. And, yeah, that, that was, yeah, one of the things I did as a freelancer. Okay, okay, so tell us a little bit about uh, dealing with, with sage advice, because, you know, it seems like that could, you, I'm sure you got obviously some very interesting letters. And actually, wait, I want to back up a second. Hold on, because, James, I put this down on my notes here. Even before that, you were where I had something from a sage advice before that, where it was from actually back in like 1982 or something like that. Hang on a second. Ah, uh, yes. You make an appearance. So I went through the Dragon magazines. You make an appearance in, 19, in a 1980 sage advice. I don't know if you remember this, but it was a, here's, the, here's a question. The question is, and, and at this point, the, the sage is, um, who is our sage, James? Gene Wells. Thank you, Gene Wells, exactly. It says, uh, my character is a ninth level. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I'm just, I'm trying to think of what the incident is. And I, so the reason that, that that name Gene Wells came up is my guess. Yes. yes it's, so. a, it's May 1980. Uh, it says, my character is a ninth level druid changed to a magic user. He is now a 10th level uh, as a magic user. I want to be able to put my previously owned apparatus of Qualish inside my newly acquired Mighty Servant of Luko. I don't even know what these are. Then I would have the ultimate weapon. If the need arose, I could abandon the Mighty Servant and escape via the apparatus of Qualish. Uh, my, uh, he gives the ability scores. He has an unbelievable 338 psionic points. Finally, we're getting to the question. Is it possible for my character to change classes a third time? 
He wants to become a cleric. He is not content to just be able to cast Druid and Magic user spells. Is there any way for this to happen? Also, if he changes alignment from neutral, does he lose Druid powers? Our DM is very big on traps that change alignments. And this is what Jean Wells said. Her first uh, line, her response is, Skip Williams picked up this letter to answer. And the next thing I knew, he was scampering for a hiding place. Wondering what scared him, because not very much does, I picked up the letter. My first reaction was, aye! So <laughs> my question is, what, why, what was your role in this? Because you, know, you are at this point in time, you're not the sage. Were you answering letters? What were you doing? I was answering letters at the time. Hmm. There, I mean, again, remember, this is before email. This is before internet chat rooms. So it was the snail mail or nothing. And the mail came in, you know, by the bag. And there was an attempt made to answer the letters for a long period of time. So, yeah, so we just happened to be at the TSR house at the time with a sack of mail. And we were fishing into the fishing into the mail, mail bag and. And trying to answer the letters, and then the idea was whoever whoever had the sage hot potato at the time would would collect whatever had been answered for that month and write it up for the magazine. So you you were involved in helping to identify letters that would be good candidates to I was, respond. To? I was involved in trying to answer the letters. Oh, okay. Whoever whoever was on tap for sage advice that month was was in charge of trying to produce those for the, for the magazine. Oh, okay. So that month it was Gene. So. Oh, okay. Um, so then uh, you, you, you're freelancing. So tell us then, then ultimately you become the official Sage for Sage advice. So, so what was that like? Yeah. So eventually people stopped answering the letters. There was the company got a little bit bigger, and answering letters directly started just fell by the wayside. So there was a this boxes and boxes of unanswered letters, and somebody had the great idea that we should just go through those and start answering those. So I was hired on a on a per letter basis. To organize these and start answering them. Wow. So I would, I think the deal that I worked out was with Harold Johnson at the time. All right, this is what I'll do. I will, I will try to keep up with, with the new stuff as it came in. And then each week I would work through a certain portion of the backlog. And I got paid on a per letter basis to do all of this. Um, so then I was doing this. Yeah, you're laughing, but that's how it was done. Um, yeah, and there was no there was no question of doing a fact or anything like that because, again, this is pre-internet. So I had been doing that for a while, and just to make it easy on myself, I kept a card catalog which had all my file names on it I had an Apple IIe at the time and was using, I think, Apple Writer. I wasn't even using Apple Works at the time. I'm not sure that means anything to your current office, but Apple Writer was 
truly it was like a second generation word processor. So I had a list of answers, letters, questions that I had previously answered that I was using for myself that, you know, to just to give myself a little bit of a leg up in case I ever got a question a second time. And then Roger Moore came along and said, well, you've been doing this anyway. Why don't you just take on Sage advice permanently? And and, well, and I, gave what? Him, I gave him a copy of the catalog, and for a while he would pick a theme. I said, okay, well, why don't you do whatever it was? Why don't you do magic this month or until we actually work through all of those? And, and how did, did Roger's sense of humor play a role in the type of responses that you could provide? Well, Roger's sense of humor got us the April Fool's column. Because, yeah, it really did start with somebody asking about if I turned somebody into a worm. My character gets turned into a worm and I get cut in half. Do I have two characters if I get turned back? <laughs> I, now. I just said, okay, you need to answer this question. And I said, I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a serious writer. Okay. <laughs> and Roger made you answer it that, right? Well, so the, the compromise there is we would do an April Fool's issue. Yeah. We would do an April Fool's issue, and it would have all these questions that were, okay, well, we would, we would give reality checks to people. So in this particular case, the first reality check is if you cut a worm in half, you don't get two worms. That's <laughs> not the way worms work. What you get is you get a smaller, you get a smaller worm and you get a smaller dead worm is what happens in most cases. Uh, unless it's a planarian. Um, earthworms, no, that doesn't work that way. And then, and, and eventually, then you're hired back, right? So you return. You you become a full time TSR employee again, right? I believe. Yes. Right? And and you join you join the RPGA staff, right? And work on polyhedron. Polyhedron and tournaments. Yeah, that's what I did. Okay. And, and then, uh, and so then, are you and you becoming you become a designer, right? And an editor, right? Correct. A desi designer editor. That was my title. Okay. And um, and then not, they would just they could pitch it pretty much anything they wanted at me. Hmm. That's a bit of a character flaw, you know. And well, yeah, well, you probably did a good job. That's the problem. You got to do just a good enough job not to get fired. That's always been my my theory. That's, that's why we that's why we've excelled at what we do because we just do the minimum exactly. That's our podcast, basically. That's basically, our so. podcast. <laughs> And then you, and then Wizards of the Coast, you are, you join Wizards of the Coast, right? When they, so when they acquire TSR, you continue on and, and, and you're off to Seattle. Yep. The land of mold and rot, as my wife used to call it. <laughs> yes. I've, I've read that she wasn't exactly thrilled to be, and you're back just so everyone know you're, you're back in Wisconsin. You're not in Lake Geneva, but you're in, you're back in Wisconsin, right? Uh, yeah, I think uh, one of the things that broke us for is our first house in Seattle uh, had some fruit trees. So we were monitoring the fruit trees 
and we were washing the plums to make sure to, to pick the plums when they were right. We went out to pick the plums and the plums on the tree were all moldy. <laughs> Hence the name. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> yeah. so. uh, and I, of course, you, you, you worked on, you're one of the authors of third edition. Uh, and you've got, James, did you play third edition? I did not. Yeah, I didn't either. So well, that, that's, I, I played the video game version of it. Um, Neverwinter Nights was uh, was based, and there was a there was a, some video games. I remember I, I was in gaming at the time, only video gaming at the time. We went both James and I went in a deep freeze for a very long time, and just came out of it a few years ago. So uh, we 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 missed. I missed second edition, third, fourth. We missed all of those. Um, so all right. So tell us a bit. So so third edition. You you obviously you've, you've talked about it. Uh, before, um, was how would you describe the differences between third and then something that we know first edition? So, uh, hmm. one of the things that third edition did, I believe, was just set about answering all the unanswered questions from the previous two editions. For example, how do you actually start an encounter? What does it really mean to be surprised? For that matter, how much can you carry while you're wearing armor? These are not answers. These are not questions that are clearly answered in the previous two editions. Oh, well, wait a second. I thought, no, I thought in first edition, surprise means I get to hack away at you repeatedly. How many times? Oh, don't go there. We don't want to have this debate. I, no, I'm very firmly believe it's just the difference. If you're both surprised, it's the difference between those two die rolls. It's not. Uh, we don't. We don't want to. James, should we start a surprise discussion? One no, e surprise discussion. No, I don't think. Yeah, you know, is it the prime pass going to be two weeks long? Yeah. So that was part of it. Um, part of it was just looking at all the things that D&D's detractors said, said over the years and seeing about closing up, you know, sewing up the rent, those rents in the system. That was not part of it. Are the demons back and the devils? Didn't the demons and the devils go out on second edition? They just got renamed. So the official story, and this has been, uh, this has been discussed elsewhere. Ben Riggs, uh, his audio blog, dealt with this. So somebody made the decision at one point that since Planescape was coming, that that's where demons and devils would go. And then somebody else made the decision, well, we can't call them demons and devils because that makes some retailers weird, hinky. So that so then we got Tenari and Beatazu. So Peter Atkinson was was adamant that we would have demons and devils back as demons and devils. So we did. I was adamant that we would keep Beatazu and Tenari because they're names that were unique to the D and D IP. So why would why would we want to drop those? But so this is when you see the demon entry in the original player's handbook, or excuse me, the Three monster manual. There are there are there are Tenari, which are a kind of demon, and there are a few other demons that are just things that live on the abyss. So we got a but question. Again, yeah, example of dealing with you know some of the dirty laundry that the game had picked up over the years. Yeah, 
and and so there was a long time between second edition and third. It was almost ten years, right? What, what did you and and so obviously you're growing not only as a writer but and a designer. You you you've gone from doing sage advice back in the day. Now you're you know you you changed the game. I mean, third edition is. It's a different game. I mean, it's D and D, but the, the mechanic is completely different. And that the I, you know, the, the D twenty rule set and engine became a plethora of games. Not even D and D related came out of it. That from this this thing, D twenty modern and yeah, and Star Wars and a, yep. a, you know, the, the modern gaming was born from from uh, this edition, and you know, the vestiges of the other games, you know, when we talked to Zeb Cook, you know, the second edition was a break from Gary. This was, a, if there was anything from Gary, this was a break from that, only because, like you said, you, you try to codify things. We have a question about, did you do a lot on second edition at all? Were you working on the, on the products in, for second edition? Uh, mostly when it's second edition, I was a consultant, and the biggest thing that I did was work on spells. Okay. John Pickens, who was the editor on the project, would show up on my doorstep or at lunch or whatever with, you know, 20 spells to work on today. And we would work on the spells, trying to get those clear enough so that people could figure out what they did. Yeah. Well, you, I would be, I'd be nervous writing anything for the D&D audience because, you know, we can be very particular, very picky. Did, 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 did you have that sense, particularly when you're writing third edition, that, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm writing for an audience which is going to be possibly be very critical? Yes, and, and we dealt with that by saying, okay, here's the goal. The goal is... We want everything that we put in there to be demonstrably better than what came before it. And our definition for demonstrably better, again, now, remember, we're now in the Internet era. Yeah. So our, our example for demonstrably better is if you get into a big argument on, on, a, you know, on, a, on a message board, you know, will you get everybody except for three or four diehards who just won't get it up to agree that you've got a good idea. And that was, that was literally the goal we were striking for. If most people could understand what we were trying to do and why we did it, then we would let the other people do. Did you ever miss the days of just receiving letters that you could just sort of file away? Well, since the letters never stopped as long as I was, even after I left, even after I left uh, Watsi, the letters never stopped until until fourth edition came. I was still doing sage advice until they got ready to do fourth edition, except they were all in email. I was going to say, do you remember any that were like just particularly mean, like dear Mister Williams, you know, and it just that you remember just lit into you. Oh yeah, um, and. And they usually followed a pattern. The pattern, uh, to put it bluntly, was you do a pretty good job, but two months ago you wrote something I disagreed with, so therefore you are subhuman. <laughs> and once you learn, once 
once you learn to uh, to read that particular subtext, then it's like, you know what? I try to be consistent, and this should not have been a surprise to you that it was written this way. Also, at one point or another, I got a hold of a Charles M. Schultz book where he shared letters. Charles M. Schultz, the... Uh, the cartoonist who did the most loved cartoon and print cartoon in history, probably peanuts. And Charles M. Schultz got hate mail. <laughs> it was like, okay, you know what? If people, if people can hate on Charles M. Schultz, I, I really shouldn't be surprised. It's like these people on YouTube, like you can look up a Beatles song and there'll still be like 500 people with a thumbs down. Yeah. Like, really? Um, so, you know, you know, so you put that in perspective. Oh, oh yeah, I, you know, the entire internet hates you because you wrote this. It's like, okay, well, okay, I guess I'll, I guess I'll have to live with that. Well, I'm not fam very familiar with, with third edition. I'll admit that. But what I do know is that, as best I can tell, it does have a strong following still to this day, right? That there's a lot of people who, because, you know, we try to recruit people to play 1E, of course, and that there's, you know, uh, there is a large contingency out there that that really loves third edition, as so-called 3.5, and they still play it. So uh, so that is a testament to, to uh, the product you put out along with your co-authors. You weren't involved in 3.5, I don't think, right? 3.5 was after yeah. you left? Yeah. So I'd like to ask you about, because something that's near and dear to our hearts, of course, is Gary Kahn. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about how you got involved in Gary Kahn, and does this feel like deja vu all over again? Oh, only a little bit. So I see it's, we're coming up on about 3.30 here or so, my time. So we should probably think about wrapping it up again. How did I get involved with Gary Kahn? Luke said, Uncle Skip, I need some help. Um so um, that was, you know, so Luke asks, and I, I've, you know, never been good at saying no to him. So uh, that's that's how the hook got set. Like the Godfather, they pulled you back in. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Luke will. You know, Luke just talked in other places about his uncles, and his uncles are just his dad's friends who were around a lot when he was a kid. So, so people like Mike Reese and. And Mike Menard and myself and Frank Mentzer and people that were just sort of always in the background when he was growing up. But, you know, the Gary Kahn was growing by leaps and bounds, uh, you know, doubling in size about every other year. So we needed some. Was it Daisy? Yeah, sure it was, except that we, the tools are just so much better. You mentioned tabletop events, you know, makes things so much easier. Mm -hmm. Is it in some respects the same as as Gen Con back in the day? The kinds of things you're doing, the types of fires you're putting out. Well, fortunately for Gary Con, I don't really have to worry about that. Most of the what I do for Gary Con, I do ahead of time, uh, doing event submissions and you know reminding people that they need to meet their deadlines and talking to people about how their events are going to run and things of that nature. And when the show actually happens, I get to play, I get to play guest and DM and I don't really have to worry about 
what happens physically at the show unless unless something really goes and the people were dealing with needed advice. So, well, it's 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 an amazing convention. I mean, I've been several times, and it's it's just phenomenal. And so, anybody who has an interest in old school gaming or or, or even new school gaming, uh, they really should go. Um, I, you you may not want me to say that because you guys are probably bursting at the seams. Uh, I know, but uh, it's yeah, it's 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 a wonderful convention. So you guys and and what I love about you, you guys are so responsive. You really are. Uh, you know, when you send emails, ask about your events, the status. You guys, you know, you're on Facebook, you're on social media. You're very responsive, and so it, it's run extremely well. So, uh, uh, you know, congratulations on, on the success of GaryCon. Uh, James, any questions from the chat before we, yeah, we let our, yeah, our guests go? We got a few. Um, so The Scourge, our dear friend Vic, uh, is, is, is March 25th, 2021. Is that going to be the date at this point, you think? Uh, yeah, that's actually been announced. That's, yeah. That one's right, you want me to if you want me to confirm that I can go digging for it. But no, if you visit okay. the if you visit the Gary Khan Facebook group or the Gary Khan page, uh they're there. Yeah. So the, the, the date is announced and there'll be a physical convention if we can make it happen. Otherwise we'll be virtual again. Mm. Okay. Um question for, from Bucky uh was he wanted to know if and this is a Back for back again, two E. Uh, if there was a plan to make a two E bestiary in the format akin to the Encyclopedia Magica or Spell Compendiums, he didn't. He didn't know if you knew about it, but if he did, uh, if you could talk about that. Um, well, I, you know, the original monsters presentation for two E was the was the compendiums when they were they were loose leaf pages. Right. So they actually did that. Yeah, but the, because uh, that's how it was done. Yeah. Somebody got the bright idea that since there's going to be monsters added constantly anyway, why don't we do them in loose leaf format? Yeah, see, I don't. I didn't play second edition, so I'm not as familiar with the Encyclopedia Magica. So, so it actually was done pretty much that way, unless he's unless he's actually talking about shortened versions. Yeah. Encyclopedia was all the stuff put together. Right. But then that was the monstrous manual. After, after the fact. Compendium, which was the original format, which was very similar to the to the Marvel books, which were loose-leaf books. Right. That, that idea died immediately because, because they... TSR realized that the, they couldn't do single sheet monsters. They were, it would just be too big and too expensive to do, for example, a monster on one page and an illo on the back, which is what you would need to have. Was you'd need to have one monster per sheet right. for it to be infinitely sortable. So the whole idea kind of died. It was just it was not particularly well thought out. Yeah, it's, it's so they eventually got rid of that and then put out the nice big thick book, which is as close to the Encyclopedia Magica as you ever got. Uh, the monstrous annual versus the monstrous compendium. Right. Um, you know, obviously, your big role in, in third edition, Carlos asks, 
you know, what's your favorite edition? Did you continue to keep playing fourth edition, fifth edition? Oh, yeah. I play fourth edition, fifth edition, you know, whenever I get the chance. Fourth edition, I like to say, is great for learning on the fly. But if I have my Druthers, I, pay, I play 3.5. Okay. It's, it's my, my game. It's yeah. three. So... So yeah. did you agree, and I don't know anything about 3.5, and my understanding is 3.5 were some minor changes, so it sounds like you agreed with the changes, or, or I guess gap-filling maybe that 3.5 did? You know, I sort of have mixed emotions about 3.5. You know, my view is that, the, is that it came out a little too quick. It was not something that the, that the community was really asking for. Um, there were certainly plenty of things that we could do with it, but I'd have been happier if we'd waited a little bit longer for for the community to say, "Here, it's time for us to do some do a few things." Do you know why they put out three point five that soon? Oh, uh, I think it was largely a business decision. Like, here, let's deal. Let's 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 prime the pumps so we can drain the well again. And I mean, three point five is a I mean, lots of things, uh, you know, came came to light after after you know two and a half million or three million people had been playing the game for a couple of years. Yeah, you know, it's kind of hard not to notice that there are some things that need tweaking. Mm. So uh, again, it's a demonstrably better version of the game that fits that category. But maybe it would have been nicer if we waited another year. But, and there are a few things that that happened just because the people who got the assignments wanted to do them. So the uh, last question from Carlos is, you know, what is what about Greyhawk or you know, what's your favorite official setting? Do you have an official setting that you like the best? I don't care much for settings, frankly. Uh, frankly, are, settings are great for looting. I'm not. I'm not really a big fan of the commercial setting. I mean, if I have to pick a favorite setting, I, it would have to be the Forgotten Realms. That's the one I actually did the most work in. So we did. I did the 3.0 version of Forgotten Realms. That was the lead designer on that. Uh, that was a big chunk of my life right after I did Third Edition. Uh, so I got to know that setting pretty well. So if I have to pick one, that, that would probably be it. Greyhawk to me is always Gary's game, and mm. that not have a lot to do with what was published. So, all right, well, great. Those are the questions we had. So, uh, Dan, anything else for Skip? Since uh, we're getting up on uh, three thirty his time, we'll pass. No, no, no. Skip, thank you so much. It's it's been real enjoyable. Hey, Skip, if people want to reach out to you, how do they reach out to you on social media or what? I'm on Facebook. Um, uh, my old uh, my old address that I used to use for um, Sage Advice, yeasage at AOL.com, is still active. Oh, that's awesome. Somebody was actually, somebody, I think it was one of you who was talking about my, my, my prehistoric email addresses. But, yeah, I'm an earlier adopter. So, yeah, yeasage at AOL.com. Um, that's doable or, or private message me on Facebook. That's great. Yeah. Well, I'm sure, you know, again, people like you who are part of the early thing and then, and continued forward. Um, you know, what do you think about the, the 
quote unquote, not only the OSR renaissance, but role playing in general that, you know, uh, we've asked this question. Did you know it was a special, when did you know Dungeons and Dragons was going to be a special and that you were living through a special time? When did that kind of hit you that this game that you guys were playing in Lake Geneva was going to become, you know, now attributed to so much of our culture? Um, I, I, if I had a sort of sort of a moment of of clarity, it would have to be during the height of the Satanic Panic. I just happened to be in the office area, and we were—I don't even remember the name of the employee, but one of the employees, an administrative assistant or something, was was a lament, lamenting about you know the hate mail that we were getting and. You know, she was very concerned because she was a Christian herself and, you know, and wondering out loud if we were actually doing anything worthwhile. And it, I think it was Troy Denning stepped up on the conversation and said, you know, there's so much creativity out there already that, you know, we are going to see a whole generation of artists and authors and even poets and they're going to exist because D&D is here. Hmm. My God, he was right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So Very impressive. That. That's awesome. Well, uh, Skip, thank you for your time today. The folks online say thank you so much for your time and your thing. And, of course, you always have an open uh, – what are you working on now at this point? Uh, right now I have got uh, – working with one of the small publishers – and uh, kind of without a contract, so I don't. I'm not terribly motivated to finish his stuff. Hey, go figure. <laughs> and that process is so. Actually, that's actually Forgotten Realms material. Five E Forgotten Realms material. I'm finishing up a Monster Lair. Um, and if I ever get off my duff and actually finish it, I will turn that over to him, and he may actually do that. I think he's doing PDFs. Uh, and then there's also a Kickstarter that's launching, um, for which I actually do have a contract. So I actually have to get that contract signed to get going. Uh, but that's, uh, it's sort of never winter nights, never winter nights ish. It's sort of, uh, uh, the publisher is already doing minis and it's essentially a campaign setting, um, setting cold climbs. So awesome. That and getting Gary Kahn restarting are my things right now. Well, if you send us a link for the Kickstarter, we'll be happy to put that on our things as well and let people know about I'll, that. I'll, I'll ask him for one, and I, I will do that for you. That would, we'd be happy to do that. So, uh, so thank you again, Skip, for your time. So on behalf of Grog Talk, I'm James. And I'm Dan. And that's Skip Williams. Thank you again, and we'll see you all next time on Grog Talk. Take care. This is big, a pushy, puppy production. All rights reserved.